Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another week here on the DCVC podcast. I'm your host, Akash Bhatt. And each week, I bring you angel investors and venture capitalists investing in tech startups in India. Well, before I go ahead and introduce my guest for today, I wanted to share a small initiative that I began two weeks ago. I was approached by a number of startups who wanted to sponsor this podcast and get their name out there through it. I was extremely humbled and flattered by it, so I decided to sit on it for a couple of weeks and think about how I wanted to approach that. Well, sponsorships are a great way to make money, and a lot of podcasts do it, but somehow didn't really strike a chord with me. I began this podcast with the goal of educating myself and people like me who are interested in understanding how the VC business worked in India. I did not and do not intend to make money through this podcast at any point. So that brings me back to the quote unquote sponsorship piece that I was offered. Well, I ended up politely declining all those offers and instead have decided to give a shout out to any startup who wants to leverage this platform to reach as many people as possible, completely free of cost. So beginning with this episode, that's what I'm going to do going forward. I'm very proud of the work that I do on this podcast, and it's a platform to help people get into the minds of investors. Well, speaking of platforms helping people, OroPocket is a platform allowing you to invest in precious metals and use them as real money to beat inflation. It's 100% asset-backed banking on blockchain. The app is available on Google Play Store and the Apple App Store. Learn more about AutoPocket on autopocket.com. That's O-R-O-P-O-C-K-E-T.com. AutoPocket, the gateway to your financial freedom. Well, speaking of financial freedom, Basis is a content and community-driven mobile platform that powers financial independence for Indian women. With Basis, you can get access to a rich library of tailor-made content, resources that help you set plans for your financial goals, and most importantly, a strong community that you can count on. The app is available on the Google Play Store and the Apple App Store. Learn more about Basis on getbasis.co. That's G-E-T-B-A-S-I-S dot C-O. Now on to this week's episode. Today I have with me Pankar Jain. He's an angel investor and ex-partner at 500 Startups, a California-based seed fund and accelerator program. Pankaj focuses on investing in early stage startups across India, the United States, and South Asia, and has led investments in over 50 companies. We talk about investing as an angel and running syndicates across multiple countries on this episode. I can't wait to share this with you, and I think it's a crash course on angel investing. So buckle up, people. This is filled with insights. Let's head in and listen to Pankaj. Good morning, Pankaj. Welcome to the podcast. Very delighted to have you join me today. I'm super excited about our chat. I'm not sure if you remember this, but we first met in 2014 when I was working at NASCOM 10K in Bangalore and we co-hosted an event together. Do you remember that? Uh, I absolutely do. Thank you so much for having me, Akash. It's been a long time. I do remember, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was like March 2014 uh, around that time. You're bang on. That's an amazing memory that you have. Um, yeah, I, I remember that. And uh, we, it was, there was a couple of times that I came down to the uh, NASCOM 10K office and 
uh, spend some time. One one time was a round table, another time was uh, more of a talk and just yep. kind of meeting with a bunch of founders and everything. So, um, you know, I don't I, I don't know if the 10K building or the 10K office is still there and if they're or if they were still doing these things before uh, the lockdown, you know? So the last I remember, they moved from the sixth, sixth or seventh floor office all the way to the basement. I'm not mm. sure if you remember seeing or you got a glimpse of that. So no, they I had don't. a bigger office space that was being developed in the basement. And they had, I think, close to 250 or 300 startups that could sit out of that space. Wow. It was huge. So you, you can imagine the one upstairs probably had about 50 companies. Yeah. So it was five times the space. They had an event room. They had a small stage that was set up for founders and speakers to come and speak. And as you know, they hosted a bunch of events themselves. Yeah. So they moved into a bigger space. I'm not sure if they've opened things back up right now. Okay. But the last I heard was when Bangalore opened up and was, um, you know, they lifted the lockdown. A few of the companies were going in and working out of the warehouse, which as you know, was what NASCOP called these co-working spaces yeah um, wow lots happened in six years lots happened in six years it's been great and uh, you know we're living in an interesting time right now and as you and i discussed before jumping on the call as well this is a very consequential moment in history don't you think absolutely 100 percent. a lot of a lot of changes are going to happen because of this. You know, there's the obvious ones that everyone's been talking about, but there's a lot of non-obvious things that I think we will figure out, you know, maybe six months after uh, things start returning to whatever is the new normal. I mean, I've, I've had these conversations with so many people. We don't really know what the new normal is. Everybody yeah. seems to be talking about it. Everybody has a different definition of what a new normal is. I'm in fact really excited about what the future holds for us because I mean, we've been looking at technologies. I mean, I'm talking very specifically from a Scrum perspective. We've been looking at technologies that perhaps could have been deployed two or three years away from now. And we're seeing all of these technologies kind of becoming mainstream today as we speak. And as a VC, as an investor, I think these are exciting times. As long as you're able to like place bets on companies that you know will really survive in the new world. Well, as a VC, you never really know what's going to survive, <laughs> uh, uh, especially at the really early stage. Uh, you don't know. But yeah, you're right. Like, I mean, I think that this is a really great time that, you know, if you're sitting on money, it is a great time to start investing in interesting ideas that you think are going to be part of the new normal, you know, whether the company's able to execute or not, or, you know, bad luck, there's, you know, that that's outside of our control, but it is a really interesting opportunity that, you know, could be a once in a generation opportunity for a lot of folks. Um, you know, and I think similarly to investing in startups and the opportunities that are available, I think, you know, even in the public markets, there are really interesting things that are going to happen that are already happening about, you know, you, you, I mean, everyone's been watching Tesla and Zoom and what they've done uh, in the stock market over the last couple of months. But, you know, there are other companies that are going to go the opposite direction. And, you know, we, we haven't really touched on that yet. 
in the public markets also. So I think, you know, both public and private markets, I think we're going to start seeing a lot of interesting new things occur, you know, opportunities as well as a lot of failures that people wouldn't have expected, you know, two years ago or three years ago. Uh, I think it'll be, it's going to be a very interesting time. Um, and as a VC, you know, if you, if you have uh, the ability to, to deploy capital, right now is the time to do it. Absolutely. We've been seeing that one of the reports that came out, I think it was a PwC and uh, CB Insights that put, put together a Q3 review, or sorry, a Q2 review of this year. And one of the things I noticed in that is that investments in early stage companies are up and investments in later stage companies are up. It's the middle companies that are kind of like missing out between your Series A and Series B. Those are the ones that have been super hard hit. Have you seen that on your side as well? Or is it just something that's happened here in the US and not across the globe? Because the report focused on most of the numbers here in the United States. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that Series A and Series B crunch is something that occurs every couple of years. Uh, it's almost cyclical. Um, you know, and it happens kind of everywhere, every different market. It's not just the US thing. It's not just an India thing. Um, you know, I think part of it is the valuations. Part of it is just perception of risk. Um, you know, later stage companies, there's this perception that, hey, it's a little bit safer of a bet. The company's a little bit closer to IPOing or exiting uh, in a big way. So I think people are a little bit more comfortable taking those later stage bets. I think because valuations are quite low, uh, at the early stage, I think whether you're talking about angels or uh, seed funds, pre-seed funds, whatever, I think they're willing to continue taking those uh, bets because they know that the amount of risk that they're taking on is finite. If the company is able to weather the next, let's say, 24 months, there's a good chance that the company will have you know, kind of an open road ahead of them, right? Of course, it varies industry to industry and how um, how saturated a particular vertical is. But, you know, I think that has a lot to do with why you're seeing early stage and late stage, but you, the, this middle, like the A and B guys, you know, for them, it's a little bit different. You know, a, a lot of companies that get to the series A stage still don't necessarily have product market fit. Um, and I think you start seeing a little bit of a pullback on risk, right? Because, the valuations, especially in a place like India, have skyrocketed over the last couple of years at the Series A stage uh, relative to where they were um, a couple of years ago. Uh, the rounds have gotten much bigger. There are, you know, you have these <laughs> ridiculously large uh, uh, Series A deals that happen. Of course, those aren't the norm, but it kind of sets a tone. And I think for a lot of Series A investors, many of them are looking at the current state and they're saying they're looking at it from a macro lens and saying well you know relative to the risk are the valuations that we were willing to uh pay uh too high and now what is our future outlook on a macro level if they are looking at the economy in india uh, over the next two years you know i think many of them are say, seeing a uh more pessimistic outlook because of the coronavirus um, and they're saying, well, because of that, maybe these companies are going to have a harder time. Uh, hence, 
there's more risk, right? So I think, right, and right. at the B stage, there, there are so few Series B investors in India that, you know, unless you have a great deal, there's no pressure for you to write a check, right? Like, uh, you know, there, there's a handful of Series B investors that can lead a Series B round, right? And uh, unless they really believe in a deal and they say, hey, this deal is fantastic and we don't have to really compete for this deal, what's the incentive to, for me to really rush, right? If the company fails in six months, then I, I'm a genius because I didn't put money in, right? If the company's still around in six months, then I can talk to them about putting money in. So I think that has a lot to do with it as well. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, Asia surpassed the US in deal volume in Q3. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even India and Australia for that matter, a lot of companies within these APAC regions have been doing fairly well. And, but these are all early stage companies. As, and as you mentioned, there are very few investors that we see in these markets at the Series B stage. And it's going to be a very interesting time as a lot of companies now kind of like also mature from an early stage to C, Series A, perhaps in 2021 and 2022. And it's yeah. going to be very interesting to see what kind of momentum that they generate from the VC industry. Are investors going to be as bullish on them as they were? Or this is more about let's pay and let's pray and pray and hope we have one or two companies within the portfolio from 2020 that can like go and graduate and raise subsequent round of funds. It's kind of like the old school mentality that you're seeing being deployed even in 2020. Well, you know, I, 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 I mean, if you're talking about the typical Series A funds in India, um, you know, I, many of them have gone downstream. Uh, I'm sorry, many of them have gone upstream. Some of them, some of the earlier stage funds uh, have gone more downstream and are investing at later stages. Some of them, uh, you know, the uh, Sequoias with Surge are, are investing much earlier than they used to. Um, and I think to to some degree, you're right, where, you know, they're, they're trying to broaden out their portfolio and have um, more optionality um, in the companies. But... You know, I, I, I think that right now, most of these guys, uh, with a couple of exceptions, so as a general rule, I would say that most of them are not doing a whole lot of spraying right now. I think most of them are doing a lot of praying, but not a lot of spraying. Um, I, have, I haven't looked at deal volume uh, in India in, for Q2 uh, or July, but at the Series A stage, you know, everyone I talk to um, is having a hard time uh, figuring out how many checks they should write uh, and how quickly they should write the checks. I think, you know, what, what I was saying about the Series B guys about taking their time, I think a lot of the Series A guys are also taking that approach and saying, you know what, I can take my time. I don't have to do um, a Series A right now. I can double down on existing portfolio companies or I can push new checks off to 2021 when we have a better idea of what's happening in the future. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't see a whole lot of Series A guys uh, broadening out their portfolio uh, further right now. I think they're still somewhat conservative. Well, that's true. Uh, we've been seeing that with some of our portfolio companies who have been trying to raise subsequent round of funding and they are having a challenge. And some of them have had to put off either by raising some some round of extensions yeah. on in some cases just 
putting the plans off until 2021 and saying, we've got some runway, let's make sure we can like be very, very lean until the end of the year. And then let's look at conversations at the beginning of the year. So that's kind yeah. of like the other approach that a lot of well, companies are taking as well. I've, I've also seen that, you know, there is a significant difference between uh, what's happening here in the US and what's happening in India. You know, m what I was saying was more of what I was seeing in India, whereas right. uh, what I'm seeing here, you know, companies are still raising four or five million dollar seed rounds, um, right? And you know, there there's still enough activity at the Series A stage um, where you know deal volume might be down a little bit um, for Q2, but I and Q3 typically in the U.S. is a slow time anyway. Um, so I I I'd be interested to see what the numbers look like for. July, August uh, in the U.S. relative to July and August last year. Uh, I, I think, you know, at the Series A stage specifically, a seed, I agree with you. I think, you know, there are plenty of folks that are continuing to do a lot of deals here in the U.S. also. But uh, at the Series A stage, uh, my visibility is a little bit more limited here. And I, I'm, I'm curious to see what those numbers will be. Because, you know, historically, what we've all seen happen is India uh, and Indian investments and startups, everything kind of lags the US market by about six months, right? So if suddenly a particular vertical is interesting and you start seeing a lot of money being poured into that vertical in the US, it's about six months later, uh, the same thing starts happening in India. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to see what's happening in July and August in the U.S. relative to July and August of last year to see, could that be a leading indicator for what we might expect to happen in India, you know, come early 2021? Now that's a very interesting point that you made. I agree. Let's hope the next couple of months are, are strong for the VC industry here in the U.S. and um, pray that India kind of like follows that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think in the U.S. there's a lot of macro things that are uh, also happening, right? It's an election year. There is uh, trillions of dollars of stimulus being pumped into the economy. Right. Uh, you know, we, we've had record unemployment. It's come down. But, you know, we still have record unemployment. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of things happening at the macro level but that I don't think has caught up with most uh VCs yet in the US, right? And, you know, there's also this whole dynamic of, well, we raise the fund, we have to continue deploying it, right? And how many VCs uh, are falling into that category? How many of them are saying, hey, we're, we're just not calling any more money from our LPs, and we're going to wait this out and kind of see where this goes before calling any more money. Uh, so I think, you know, those dynamics are a little bit different between here and India. Uh, so it's interesting to kind of look at them from a macro level and kind of dive in deeper and see, are we seeing any signals coming out of these things? Now, that's a wonderful point that you make. It's going to be an interesting couple of months, especially towards the end of the summer and see what happens here in the US and the kind of effects that it has globally as well across yeah. many other markets, including that in India. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I guess a good segue would be to talk about your journey and, you know, giving our listeners an opportunity to hear where 
what you've been doing all these years, you know, how did it start? Did you always know you wanted to be in the world of venture capital and investing as such? Take us through that journey and, and highlight some of the key moments that led you to where you are today. Wow. We're going real far back. We're going real back. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've always been interested in uh, investing. And, you know, it, I think the, the first time that I got interested in uh, investing was when I saw the movie Wall Street uh, as a teenager. And um, this was the first one, not the second one. Uh, the first Wall Street, which I still think is a fantastic movie and it's worth like anyone uh, whether you're an investor or not, I, I think people should watch that movie. Uh, but that was kind of my first uh, interest uh, was sparked at that point when I when I saw that movie. Uh, but, you know, as a teenager, a young teenager that was like, yeah, whatever. Um, and over time, um, I, in school, in high school, we were lucky enough that there was uh, an economics class that uh, we could take. And my economics teacher in high school, he did a uh, stock picking game. So, you know, you, you, you had to bring your copy of the New York times to, to school every morning. And, um, you know, in class you would pick certain stocks and you basically had to track those stocks. And, you know, it was, it, it was not real money, but it was more of like teaching young people how to think about investing. And, you know, um, that had a real big impact on me. Um, but I still didn't know how to invest or what to invest in. And, you know, this is before you can just go online and look on, look up a stock or, or anything like that. Um, my real kind of deciding factor that I wanted to get into investing or be at least be on wall street was when I read the book, liars poker. Um, I think it was my sophomore year or junior year in high school when I read Liar's Poker. Uh, it was about Solomon Brothers in the heyday. And uh, a large part of the book was about um, John Merriweather and how Solomon Brothers had built uh, the biggest uh, mortgage trading firm in the world. Um, that's kind of when I was like, wow, this is really cool. I want to be a mortgage trader when I grow up. Uh, fast forward through college, whatever, you know, I did a bunch of internships at, uh, you know, places like Merrill Lynch and, uh, other places, uh, my first job out of school. Uh, so, so I want to backtrack a little bit, uh, in college, um, I was interning at Merrill Lynch and I wasn't getting paid. It was an unpaid internship. Um, and I think this was my sophomore year of college. I was working for a stockbroker and, you know, doing all kinds of stuff like putting mailing uh, uh, newsletters out to his clients and things like that. And, you know, he asked me, he's like, hey, do you know how to put, uh, do you know anybody who knows how to program? I said, yeah, I could probably find some people in college. And he said, well, I asked him why. He's like, well, I want to put a database together of all my clients and, you know, uh, doing regular uh, newsletters to them and things like that. I was like, oh, I could do it. He's like, you know how to program? I said, no, but I'll learn it. And uh, I asked him, I said, are you going to pay? He said, yeah, I'll pay $5 an hour. I said, okay, I'll do it. And he's like, okay. I walked out of uh, work that day 
and I walked a couple blocks to a computer store and the uh, first version of Microsoft Access uh, had just been released. It was, I still remember it was $99. It was this huge box with like, you know, God knows how many manuals on relational database programming. So that's how I learned relational database programming. And I got so excited about building product that, you know, that was, that's really what excited me at that point, like just building stuff. I, was, I wasn't as excited about trading or investing anymore. I was more excited about building things. Um, so I continued on with different internships, uh, throughout college and my first job at JP Morgan kind of took me, uh, more to the technology side rather than the investing side, uh, because that's, I found that I had a real passion for the technology and, um, you know, that was interesting. And then I got a job JP more, uh, from JP Morgan, I went to long-term capital management and that was the it was kind of a hybrid job. It was a lot of uh, programming, but it was a uh, job working with the trading desk, the mortgage desk and the fixed income desk. So at LTCM, everything that a investor did, even a lot of the traders, they, they would program. Um, so just gobs and gobs of data and sucking that data up and uh, figuring out investment decisions. So for me, that became a very interesting kind of middle ground between my passion for my uh, for, for building things and my uh, interest in investing and finding interesting investments. Um, but I took a detour. I, I stopped really worrying about being an investor. I was no longer interested in being a trader. I uh, spent more time building product uh, and working at startups. Like LTCM was a startup when I joined. Uh, it was a very well-funded startup, but it was a startup. Uh, you know, I think I was, you know, somewhere in the number 45 uh, employee. Um, and then when LTCM blew up, we went and we started Globop Financial Services, which was uh, really a middle back office services company for hedge funds. And now it's a lot bigger and uh, does a whole lot more. But, you know, that was kind of my first real foray into entrepreneurship and um, building product. And, you know, I was responsible for a, a lot of different things. One of those things was uh, to build out an internal system uh, to house all the data that we were accumulating on different types of securities across the globe and working with developers. So I became more of a, a product manager from that perspective. And that was really exciting and uh, wonderful. Um, but I decided that I was done with finance. I didn't want to be in finance anymore. And I wanted to really dive more on to the technical startup product side of things. And I didn't really know what this meant. You know, this is like 2004, 2005. Um, you know, there weren't a whole lot of podcasts out there. There weren't a whole lot of, I don't even think TechCrunch uh, was available in 2004, maybe 2005 it was. But, um, you know, so you're still kind of like, groping in the dark to figure out what all this stuff means. And New York didn't have any sort of real tech ecosystem at that time. Um, but, you know, that led to a, another stint. But eventually that kind of led me to like, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. Uh, and that's when I moved to India in 2007. Uh, I started a business. The idea was to build 
essentially what Urban Clap is today. Uh, not exactly, but um, more or less what Urban Clap is to build something along those lines. And, you know, I spent uh, two, three years in India working on that. Um, and it became very clear to me when I got there that I needed a co-founder. I didn't have uh, a network in India. There was no, you know, I, I don't know if you remember, but you know, 2007, there was no ecosystem in, in India. There right. weren't events happening where you could just pop in and say, Hey, let's network and let's meet and who's working on what none of that stuff really existed. And, um, you know, so I, I realized very quickly that like, Hey, either I should just move back to New York or I need to do something where I'm going to find and meet, you know, interesting, smart people who want to build cool things. Um, and, you know, through various things, I started getting involved with organizing bar camps in India. Bar camp was still a big thing back then. Uh, I got involved in organizing bar camp Delhi a couple of times. Um, right when the financial crisis hit, um, there was a bar camp that was organized and I did a talk on the financial crisis. Uh, it was supposed to be one session for a half an hour. It turned into a two and a half hour session. Um, and uh, it was something that kind of helped me meet a whole bunch of people. Um, and because I knew something about the financial world and kind of what happened uh, during the financial crisis, I was able to explain that to a whole lot of people uh, who didn't really understand or didn't really know. And suddenly I was seen as somebody who had some expertise in something and allowed, instead of me trying to one-on-one, -on -one, trying to find people to connect with, uh, it allowed people to know who I was. And so like, that was my first kind of real uh, exposure to just saying, Hey, become a speaker, talk about things that you understand, let people find you. Um, I didn't really know that or understand that before. This just happened by accident. And through that, I met um, a bunch of folks who were also starting to organize small events uh, in Bangalore, in Mumbai. Uh, most of them were previous bar camp organizers and uh, they were starting to do something called Startup Saturday. Uh, and they asked me to come on board and, you know, become a co-founder, start this nonprofit called Head Start Network Foundation and uh, lead Delhi. And so I said, yes, this is exciting. And so 2008, uh, December, we started Startup Saturday Delhi. Um, and, you know, I was still trying to do my startup. Uh, it was not going well. I was having a very hard time hiring quality people. I was uh, firing more people uh, than I ever had previously in my life. Um, and it was, it, it, it was a really tough time for me mentally. Um, you know, here I was in, at that point, my early 30s uh, to mid 30s. And, you know, I'm talking to friends back in New York, we're doing really well. Everyone's making a lot of money. Meanwhile, I'm sitting in India. Uh, I'm burning through savings. And I honestly, like I look back on it, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Uh, I wasn't uh, able to get the right people on board. I wasn't able to build a product out in the right way and get it to market. 
Um, you know, we tried a bunch of things, some things worked, some things didn't, but it was, it was a tough time, but it was also a great time for me to learn, uh, about myself and of course, India and doing business at, at a whole different level than I had before. Um, you know, fast forward to 2010, I decided that, all right, I'm done. Uh, it's time to shut this company down. This is not going to go anywhere. And I think part of it was, I came to the realization that the problem that I was trying to solve was a really, really big problem. And there's, there's a very big multifaceted problem that I didn't have the expertise to solve in India. And part of it was because I had never lived in India. I didn't really understand a lot of the nuances of doing business in India, hiring people in India, stuff like that. Like, you know, to me, it was mind boggling that somebody had a job interview and would just never show uh, or would show up two hours late to a job interview. Or, you know, you have an employee who is married and has children and, you know, uh, their mother would call you and say that they can't come to work. Like those things just didn't compute to me. But I learned from those. Those were, um, you know, cultural things that I was not aware of. I learned from that. But it was it was a long learning and it was time to shut the startup down because I bootstrapped it for three years and the amount of money that I had allocated for it, I'd burned through. So I was like, all right, I'm done. Um, I was still doing startup Saturday, but you know, by end of, uh, or by April of 2010, I kind of said, all right, guys, you know, let's pass the baton on to some other folks and let them run it. Um, I don't think startup Saturday at that point was solving a need as the ecosystem had evolved. Um, Startup Saturday had not evolved with the ecosystem. And I started, you know, I came back to New York, spent a little bit of time here over the summer and stuff. And I came upon Startup, Startup Weekend. And I said, wow, this is, this is exactly what we need. We need an experiential uh, education platform for entrepreneurship in India. And I spent a couple of months trying to convince Startup Weekend to let me uh, launch it in India. Uh, eventually they gave in and, uh, I launched startup weekend in India in March of 2011. During that time, 2010, 2011, you know, I, I, I had shut my startup down. Um, I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to do next. Uh, becoming a VC had never even entered my mind. Uh, you know, I, the things that entered my mind was, Hey, move back to New York, go back to finance, uh, do that. Or, you know, think of another idea, start another company. Um, but becoming a VC was not something that I had even considered as a uh, real career option. Um, so I just kind of kept doing what I was doing, which was kind of giving back to the community and saying, hey, you know, there's a lot to be learned from uh, something like Startup Weekend. So I started doing Startup Weekend across India. Um, on a fairly regular basis. I think 2011, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I think we had somewhere around five or six events across India in 2011. Um, and, you know, it, it, I think the, the thing about Startup Weekend that was really exciting was that we had um, real luminaries in the industry come, right? Like the first Startup Weekend that we did, Sanjeev Bikchandani came, he was a judge, right? Um, having somebody like Sanjeev come uh, is amazing, right? Like just to hear his journey at Naukri and, you know, to be able to interact with him. And somebody like Sanjeev is so down to earth. He hung out 
after the event and you know, had dinner with everyone. People were mingling. So I think, you know, those types of interactions is really what really made Startup Weekend something that people wanted to go to. Um, but for me, what it also did was it just open up a whole new way of thinking about not just entrepreneurship, but thinking about community and, you know, what does community mean? What does ecosystem mean? You know, a lot of people talk about it, but, you know, I was kind of experiencing it for myself, having been a failed entrepreneur at that point and, you know, somebody who didn't know what the next step in their career path was. It, it didn't feel like it was going to be a job, but it had to be something in this area. And I, I didn't really know uh, what that meant. And I started seeing that this whole community thing was really important and ecosystem was, they went all hand in hand together, right? Like the community, the ecosystem, the investing, the building of companies, all that stuff kind of fit together. And not a lot of people were talking about that type of stuff in a structured fashion at that time. So it was kind of just like learning as you go. But while I was doing this, I started meeting other really fantastic entrepreneurs and some of them started um, asking for advice or help. And the first thing was like, hey, here's the things that I did wrong. Don't do these things, right? Um, that's what I knew. Um, so that kind of like put me on this path of like getting more involved with other startups and helping those startups out. And in late 2011, we were doing um, Startup Weekend Go to Gao. And um, Abhishek Gupta, uh, who one of the uh, um, founding members of T-Labs, um, I had met him uh, previously at a startup Saturday. I asked him to be a judge. So he came, he, he was judge, and he was like, wow, this is fantastic. This is before T-Labs had launched. He's like, this is amazing. Met some really great entrepreneurs there. Um, and then he asked me, he's like, hey, you know, is this your full-time job or whatever? And we, we became friendly and he's like, well, you know, we're launching this accelerator. Would you be interested in helping out? Uh, and I said, yeah, that'd be, that sounds really cool because it pretty much means doing exactly what I'm doing right now except getting a paycheck. Um, so, you know, that was fun. And that kind of became you know, the accidental VC path uh, that I found myself on. And, you know, 500 was much the same thing. I had been helping 500, um, similar to what you were saying before, uh, helping uh, 500 look at India, understand India, um, meet some founders. Um, they had invested in uh, MyGola already, partly because... Um, uh, there was a Stanford connection over there, but you know, after that they hadn't invested in any other companies in India. So they, I was helping them. And then eventually they just said, Hey, would you be interested in coming on board and helping us with our whole India strategy? Um, so, you know, multiple accidental steps uh, <laughs> that kind of led me to be a VC, but I never planned to be a VC. I never thought of myself as a VC. I still don't think of myself as an investor first. I still think of myself as a entrepreneur first, maybe not a great entrepreneur, but I still think of myself as an entrepreneur first, um, who just happens to invest in other entrepreneurs and some of them really great entrepreneurs. So sorry for the long winded history, but, um, I think it was important to kind of tell it that way. So there was the context was there. 
No, absolutely. That was a wonderful journey. So thank you so much for laying it out there. You've had such amazing stories within the larger canvas here. And it's funny that you brought up the Wall Street in the earlier part of that answer because it's one of my all-time favorite movies. And I had, I think there's a quote somewhere that I came across which still lingers in my head, which goes something like, greed captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit, which, mm. you know, is, was said by Gordon Gecko, played by the legendary Michael yep. Douglas. Uh, yep. I love that quote, sticks in my head, uh, still stuck in my head years after I watched the movie. Yeah. And it kind of like defines... The, our generation as such, if you think about it, and really lays down a lot in terms of not just venture capital, but in general in life. So that, that really is something that stood out to me. And I think an extension to that first segment is I want to ask you, which among all of these experiences that you've had, you know, you were a founder, you were a partner, you run all of these uh, exciting projects on the side as well. Which was the most important experience, in your opinion, that kind of has shaped your career? Uh, undoubtedly, it's my experience at long-term capital management. Um, yeah, I was, how old was I? I think I was 22 when I started working at uh, long-term capital management. Uh, no one had heard of LTCM. No one knew what LTCM was, and that was by design. Um, you know, when I got the job offer, um, when, when, when I first interviewed there, I told the recruiters and stuff, I was like, look, I'm, I don't want to go to any other interviews. I don't want to go anywhere else. This is where I want to work. Um, and I stopped interviewing anywhere else. And it was a long interview process. It took a couple of months. Um, but when I finally got an offer, you know, I, I went to my dad and I said, look, you know, I'm working at JP Morgan right now. I'm not very happy. Uh, here's an offer at LTCM and, you know, I want to take it. What do you think? And, you know, my, my dad gave me a very non Indian parent, typical answer. He said, I don't know anything about your industry. I don't know anything about uh, this company. Uh, I, I've heard of JP Morgan, but I have never heard of LTCM. Um, you got to do your research and you got to make a decision of what's right for you and your career. And I was like, oh, gee, thanks, dad. Uh, <laughs> right here I am asking for advice and you just tell me to figure it out on my own. In hindsight, uh, I look back on that and I think that was, that was a really important moment for me because you know I think I've seen this with Indian parents all the time. I've seen this with uh, just, it's the culture Indian parents are extremely overprotective and they um, are involved in every aspect of their child's life. And here's when my father kind of stepped back and said, no, you got to figure it out on your own. I can't help you with this. And, you know, that gave me the confidence to say, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the job. And once I took that job, um, you know, it was every day of like, oh my God, I have to learn this. I have to learn that. I have to do this. I have to do that. And, you know, that's any job when you're 22 years old. But the thing that really shape, helped shape my career and my way of thinking about my professional life was the intense loyalty that people at LTCM had to each other. Um, you know, we, we went through... Um, 
essentially the 2008 financial crisis was LTCM only in 1998. We were at the epicenter of uh, the whole financial market globally uh, teetering on collapse. And that was a lot of stress. And that was a lot of decisions that had to be made very quickly. And, you know, people were working 24 seven in the office, people that didn't need to be in the office. I was 20 at that time, 24, 25. I didn't need to be in the office on a Saturday, uh, you know, but I was still there. I still went because everybody else was there. And, you know, when you're, when you're 23, 24, you kind of look at that and you say, well, all right, I'm just going to do it because everybody else is doing it. I don't see the reason for it, but you know, I probably should just be there because my boss is there. You know, hindsight, you look back and you say, you know, people were there because they were supporting each other. People were. Because they cared. Yeah, exactly. And there was that intense loyalty. The, the other thing that I learned was when this crisis started in August of 98, we're about two to three weeks into the crisis. And um, I still remember, I, th I don't remember if it was a Friday. I feel like it was a Friday, but the partners called a meeting and uh, this was across Greenwich, London and Tokyo. They called everyone out onto the trading floors. The whole company was out, uh, all 200 people in all three locations. And they said, this is what's going on. Um, I, I, my memory is a little hazy, but it, it, it was almost like um, the offer from Warren Buffett had come in. Yeah, now I remember. It was a Friday. The offer from Warren Buffett had come in on Friday. They had 45 minutes to accept the offer. And they decided not to accept the offer. And then they called everyone out on the floor and they said, look, this is the offer that came in. We had 45 minutes to make a decision. It was an exploding uh, offer that basically said Warren Buffett is going to buy all of the assets of LTCM or Berkshire Hathaway is going to buy all the assets of LTCM, um, but not buy the company, not buy uh, or provide jobs to the employees, nothing. It was just financial transaction, come in and buy all the assets and that's it. Um, and I don't remember the exact details of what the offer was, but you know, the, the partners basically said, no, uh, if this is negotiable, if you buy the company and you can get rid of us, but people have people who work here still maintain their jobs, then we can discuss it. And Goldman and Berkshire Hathaway said, no, this is non-negotiable. So that offer went away. And then they called everyone out on the floor and they said, uh, this is the offer. We rejected it. And, um, what we're doing now is everyone is going to get paid out through December 31st. This is, you know, late August, beginning of September, something like that. And they're basically saying, we're just paying everyone, everyone, your next paycheck is going to happen like tomorrow and you're going to get paid out your full salary through the end of the year. I've never seen any other company do that in a crisis situation where it's like, Hey, we're about to die, but we're going to pay all of you. And to me, that was like, Whoa, this is crazy. We're, we're all just going to get paid. Yeah. We all just got paid. And then their whole point was like, look, if you're worried about your job, you're worried about your mortgage, you're worried about your salaries. Don't worry about it. You're getting paid. They paid everybody out. Uh, a couple of weeks later, you know, the whole bailout happened. And um, after the bailout, the consortium, which was the 
14 banks that bailed us out. And they came in and they said, okay, it's time to cut staff. People have to leave. And, you know, that was a very tough time. But a lot of people were let go. But they said, look, you've all been paid out through, through December 31st anyway. So, you know, you've gotten your salaries. We're not asking you to pay us those salaries back. We're also going to take a part of the office and we're going to convert it to a co-working space. It wasn't called co-working back in those days, but it's like, hey, we're just going to turn this into a space that has internet access, has printers, has phones, uh, and you can all come here and use this free of charge. We're also going to have somebody who was on the staff is going to help you with recruiting and connecting you with uh, recruiters and helping you get jobs. I don't know any company that has ever done that for their employees, right? Like I look back on those types of things that the partners at LTCM did, don't get me wrong, you know, there were other things that um, they could have done better, but these things that they did is what created this loyalty amongst employees, right? And sure, people were upset about losing their jobs, but they tried to do the best they could to help people through that, right? And things that nobody nobody had to do and um that's really what built loyalty and through my career after that you know that that's been the singular driver it's like loyalty to people above anything else and combined with integrity right like to me those were the two most important lessons uh that i was fortunate enough to learn at a very young age and at the beginning of my career. And I've tried to take both of those things and really ingrain them in, in my career for the last 20 years. This is wonderful. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I love these podcasts because it gives you a glimpse into the guest and their journey. Because a lot of people might know you as Pankaj from 500 Startups or Startup Weekend or the Investor on Angel List. But the early years are easily forgotten, especially if it's not like super flashy in other people's opinion and eyes. So in your case, LTCM kind of like shaped, shaped your future in a way. And that's a really significant moment. And thank you so much for sharing with us on the podcast. And that kind of becomes a great segue into my next segment where I'd like to focus on angel investing and syndicates for most part, because that's, as I previously mentioned to you, an area that we haven't covered enough on the podcast as I'd like to have. Yeah. And, and I also get many soon to soon to be angels or those who have embarked on that journey requesting me to have done an episode or do an episode on um, angel investing and quiz angel investors about best practices and share some of their quote unquote secrets on the, on the podcast. So with that, we can get into, we can get into it and pick your brain on angel investing if you're okay with it. Yeah, sure. Super. Now, before we proceed, I wanted to set some context for our listeners an angel investor typically is a high net worth individual who provides capital for a business or a startup, uh, usually in exchange for convertible note or ownership equity, usually when most traditional institutional investors are not prepared to back them. And a syndicate is a special purpose vehicle created to make a single investment, allowing private investors to invest alongside seasoned investors or VCs, especially on the early stage. Now, correct me if I have those two definitions wrong, Pankaj, but you've been on the venture side, you've run accelerator programs, you've been a partner, and along the way, you've also invested your own money into early stage startups as an angel. What are the similarities and differences between 
VC investing and angel investing in your opinion? Maybe we can perhaps begin with the similarities first. So uh, similarities um, are people are writing checks because they see an opportunity for disruption. They see an opportunity for making impact. They see opportunity to make money through the other two things, right? Disruption and impact. Uh, I think those are similarities. I think there's not a whole lot of other similarities that I can think of off the top of my head right now, other than um, there's generally a passion for positive change that exists, right? Um, I think VCs at the core, some, I think some of the best VCs uh, have a passion to see positive change and positive impact. And they see uh, technology startups as a way of doing that. Uh, and I think a lot of angel investors also do that. I think that's kind of where a lot of the similarities end. You know, as an angel investor, I'm investing my own money, um, which is a finite amount of money. I can't go talk to uh, LPs and get more money in my pocket. Um, you know, if, if I'm not getting a raise every year, the amount of money that I can uh, deploy also is limited. Um, whereas a fund has a pool of capital that they can deploy for a certain amount of time. They can continue to go out and try to raise more capital from other investors. So they're not taking a whole lot of personal risk where angels take a lot of personal risk. Um, I really think that angel investing has nothing to do with making money. Angel investing has to do with your passion to be involved in shaping the future in some way um, and working with brilliant people who have a vision of how to do that uh, and supporting them through it, right? And supporting them the way I see it, at least, with money, it's not really the money that matters. It's more of the money is the hook for me to be interested and excited enough to continually be involved and help you when you need it. Um, right. And of course, you know, VCs also do that, but as a, uh, more as a firm, not necessarily as an individual, right. Um, Cause individuals uh, will come and go from a VC firm. Um, so I think that could be a little bit different, but um that's think, a great. That's a great point. Just to interrupt you there for a moment. Yeah. yeah How please. influential can an angel investor be? Look, I I think it depends on how early you get in, and I think it also depends on how how helpful you are, and how supportive you are. Like I, as a VC, I invested in a company, um, and that company had also raised money from some angel investors and uh, the company wasn't doing so well. And for various reasons, uh, we, the, the company was going through a potential acquisition um, and it was a strategic acquirer. And we got on a call with a couple of the angel investors, myself and a couple of, and the founders uh, on it. And I remember one of the angel investors was brutal. I mean, he was insulting the founders. He was accusing them of 
you know, stealing his money. Um, he was accusing me of being uh, a absent uh, investor and I should have taken a more hands-on approach uh, in the company. And, you know, if you are an investor who is putting money into an angel, uh, into a startup as an angel, I think the day that you write that check, you have to assume that you're never going to see a dime again. And that's not easy for people to do. Like, you know, they say, right? Like right. You, to be an angel investor, you really do need that. Um, you can't be an angel investor if you're worried about losing your money because most angel investors are going to lose their money. Um, and if you are investing to make money, there are other places where you should invest. Buy some real estate, put money in the stock market, you know, etc. If you are investing because you want to create impact, you want to create change, or you have a strategic reason to invest, that's different. But you can't worry about how much you're going to lose. You got to do some risk management, say, look, I'm ready to go to Vegas and put, you know, this amount of money on red, <laughs> right? And you have to kind of approach it in a similar way and say, if I, if I never see this money again, I'm not going to be happy, but it's not going to kill me. It's not going to change my life. Right. Um, and I think that's a really important part of angel investing is just saying, Hey, this is how it goes. Nine out of 10 startups are going to fail. You just don't know which nine and you don't know which one is going to succeed. Right. So you have to measure risk. You have to calculate how you're going to invest so that you can minimize your losses and maximize your wins. Um, you know, angels also don't have the resources necessary to do this at scale that a fund can, right? A, a larger fund is going to have more money. They're going to have, you know, more employees. They're going to have lawyers. They're going to have uh, so many other resources that they can deploy to get deals done and open up deal flow. As an angel investor, look, if I'm investing $20,000, $25,000 in a company and then I got to spend $5,000 on legal fees, I'm not doing it. There's just no way I'm spending 20% of my investment amount on legal fees or operational fees, right? So that's why most angel investors piggyback off of um, a, in, uh, a fund that's coming in or say, hey, let's do a safe. It's simple. It's easy. Everybody gets it. There's no real legal work that you have to go through if you've done a safe before, right? Um, so, you know, there's a lot of differences between how an angel views um, an investment versus how a fund views an investment. I think being helpful uh, really determines your relationship with the founders, um, which also determines over time how you get access to quality deal flow. If you are a person that is helpful, you are supportive, you work with the founders through good times and bad times, you're more likely to get access to better deal flow because founders talk to each other. They tell each other who was good to work with, who was uh, helpful, who wasn't, right? So, you know, if you're, not, uh, if you're not helpful in that way and you're not supportive, over time, you're not gonna see great deal flow and that's gonna mean more losses. So I guess an extension to that question is, 
how do you provide that value as an angel investor? What are some of the things that angels can do? You talk about being supportive and helpful. Yeah. What are the best practices? What have you seen? What do you do personally? And what are some of the tips that you have for first time angels or even those who've been there and been doing that for a while now? What are some ways that they can continue to add value? Yeah. As an angel. Sure. So um, one of the things that I like to do is I like to be a customer uh, of the company that I'm thinking about investing in. And I say customer, not a user. Um, I will pay them to try out their product, whatever it might be. Um, and I want to get a feel for what their users and customers feel. Um, of course, that's a not always possible because if it's an enterprise software play, then, you know, <laughs> I may not be able to afford it and um, I may not be able to get maximum value out of that product. But in general, if it's possible, I like to try out the products and use the products um, and see, is this solving a need for me? And if it is, can it solve a need for other people? So that's one thing that I, I'd like to do most of the time with some exceptions. Um, in the course of that, as I'm using the product, I also like to provide feedback to the founders, right? As a user of your product, as a customer who's paying you to use this product, here is what is working and here's what's not working for me. And this is why, right? It takes time, it takes effort to put those explanations together and share those. But I think that's very helpful to a lot of the founders. Um, you know, a lot of founder things defer company to company as well. Some companies um, might come back and say, you know, the type of feedback you're providing might be more applicable to an enterprise software uh, product, but not really applicable to a straight B2C product. Okay, fair enough. You have to kind of apply that context. Um, I think also in hiring, that's a really important uh, skill that it takes time for founders to ramp up. So if you can be helpful in introducing uh, people to the company, if you can be helpful in the actual interview process, um, that's also, I found to be very helpful for a lot of founders. Um, customers, that's another place, right? Like um, if you, again, coming back to the whole enterprise B2B side of things, if you can, introduce them to customers, if you can help them with customer pitch decks, uh, if you can help them with uh, positioning and kind of like how to sell this product to this type of customer, that type of stuff is helpful to a lot of founders. Uh, on the B2C side, you know, it's more of, okay, if you have some ideas around marketing and customer acquisition, that type of stuff can be very helpful for uh, early stage founders. And, you know, a lot of that stuff is available online you can like learn some of the stuff but you know for founders that are building a product trying to acquire customers sometimes they don't necessarily have all of these types of skills um, on staff so being an angel investor you're almost like a part-time employee and if you see yourself as a part-time employee and say hey what do you need help with what can i help you with that helps but it comes it it, it also goes both ways because if founders aren't forthcoming about what they need help with. If they're not forthcoming about what's going on in the company, it's hard for people to actually help. Right. So it's a, it's a, 
it, it's a two-way thing. It's a two-way relationship that has to be built. You know, some founders are very good about providing updates to their investors saying, hey, this is what's going on. This is what we are doing well. This is what we're not doing well. This is what we need help with. And there are other founders who are very bad at that. I think the founders who are very good at that are the ones that actually take advantage of the support that their angel investors can provide at the early stages. Then of course, there's also, hey, how big is your network? Can you introduce me to other investors? Can you introduce me to other VCs? Because you know, as a founder, you're always raising money. So having a network or at least building a network um, to do that is also very helpful. Now, there's a lot of other things that come up um, periodically, but a lot of those things are based on the type of relationship that you and the founder work to build with each other, right? Like I have some founders that uh, I am friends with and I will hang out with. Then I have other founders that I'm not friends with, but you know, anytime they're trying to do something with the product, they will, you know, text me and say, Hey, what do you think about this? Here's a screenshot of our newest product. What do you think? You know, stuff like that. So it, it really depends a lot on the type of relationship, the type of company, the stage. Um, but what doesn't change is I think angel investors should be very clear. Okay, I'm going to potentially invest in your company. This is what I can help you with. There's one company that I'm working with right now. I haven't um, made a decision to invest in this company. Uh, I most likely will, but I've spent about a month with the company. I still haven't actually been able to use the product, but I told him on our last call, I said, look, I've been doing these calls, hour long calls every week with the founder, helping them with a bunch of different things, introducing them to different people. Um, and then said, well, look, I think I will probably want to invest. I'll make a final decision after I'm able to use the product. So now the ball's in your court. You got to get onboard me as a customer. If I like the experience, I want to invest and potentially do a syndicate around that deal. And he said, great. We'd love to have you. You know, you've been really helpful uh, with introductions and kind of some of the strategy stuff that they were working on. Okay. So will that always be the case? Probably not. Um, and I think most angel investors are probably the most useful prior to a series A. Some of them are still useful and helpful afterwards, but most it's really the series A point at which that tapers off. That's a very interesting point that you made there because I want to pick up on that. A lot of early stage founders as well, maybe the ones who raise seed rounds, sometimes have traditional VCs who are part of the, the funding that they've raised along with angel investors and syndicates who have come, come into that round. Now, when you have a traditional VC who's kind of helped you raise the seed round or has been a lead in that round itself, and you have a bunch of angels who have participated, automatically founders mentality is to go to VCs in case they have problems or in case they have uh, needs and demands, because that's kind of where they feel they have all the answers because VC funds are a little more structured or the perception is that a little more structured and they might have answers and can have resources to help out. Yeah. How do you as an angel kind of then compete with a VC firm for the attention of the founder because you invested your money into it and you kind of feel that there are possibilities that you can help them out, but there is not enough sufficient time in the founder's day or, or week to really do that. 
and their focus is kind of shifted from angels to VCs at that point. So how do you bring that attention back or how do you best create opportunities both for yourself and, and the founders to, to really sit down and think through some of the challenges that they have? So I don't see it as a competition with VCs for one. I see it as, look, we're all in it together. Um, and I, I've always liked to take a more collaborative approach to things. Um, you know, some, some of it means building relationships with some of these VCs to understand how they think and how they're working with the companies that you're investing in. Um, and, you know, building a relationship of trust where the VC also begins to understand who you are, what you can be helpful with, um, where your expertise lies. And, you know, are you providing uh, advice that may be contrary to what they're providing, but it's still helpful. So I think, you know, that is important to kind of build a collaborative uh, relationship with some of these VCs. Of course, you can't do it with everybody, but, um, especially in places like India, it's a, it's a relatively small industry, right? And word gets around pretty quickly. So building some of those relationships out is helpful. In terms of uh, getting founders' attention, I think it, again, comes back to the relationship that you've built. If you have built a good relationship with the founders, they'll come back to you regardless, right? Like, I mean, they're founders that I invested in years ago that, you know, when they hear I'm in India, they'll say, hey, do you have time to meet up? Uh, or, you know, if they're coming to New York, hey, do you have time to meet up? Uh, and some of them will periodically reach out for me to help them with something uh, because it's the relationship that I built with them. I have no economic interest in those companies any longer. Uh, uh, and there's no need for me to help them, but it's because of a relationship that we've built that I feel I should help them. Um, so spending time, and again, both sides, building that relationship early is important. Now, I understand the transactional nature of raising money and fo focusing your attention. In some cases, I'm perfectly fine with saying, you know what, you have a very high quality investor, VC investor coming on board, leading the round and putting money in, wonderful. If you need my help, I'm here, and here are the things that I can help with. If you want a sounding board, sure, reach out, let me know, I can be a sounding board. If you want to spend more time with that VC, perfectly fine with me. I have no uh, problem with that. I don't feel like my value is being diminished because you're doing that. Um, again, I think it's about making the best possible resources available to the founders and to the startup and putting your ego aside and saying, hey, my, I'm smarter about this or I know this company better or whatever. No, that, you know, put that aside. If the VC firm has more resources available, if you think that they are providing the right direction and the right guidance and the right resources, great. If you think they're not, well, okay, reach out to the founder and say, hey, I noticed that, you know, they talked about doing X, Y, Z. Do you have a couple of minutes to chat about that and maybe have a frank conversation with the founder about why you think that's not necessarily the best idea. Um, but, you know, try to be collaborative. I, I, I don't think that this is a us versus them thing. Like, you know, the VCs, the angels, the founders, 
they're all kind of in it together and all trying to figure out a way to make these companies successful. They may have different opinions of how to go about doing that. And that's kind of what you want to collaborate on and talk through and kind of figure out the best way to do that. That's a great point. At the end of the day, everybody wants to see their portfolio companies succeed and do well. And I kind of like noticed two things that really stood out in that particular segment. And I want to piggyback off of it because I noticed something interesting about you. You're an angel who's invested not just in Indian companies, but also those in the US. How does angel investing compare to different markets? And what are the nuances here? And what have you learned between your experiences in India and the United States? So, you know, I think the market here is far more competitive. Um, There are far more opportunities that also pop up over here. Um, I see opportunities in hardware. I see opportunities in security. I see opportunities on the consumer side, maybe a little less on the consumer side. Um, But, you know, there's just so much stuff constantly uh, coming at you in the U.S., Um, right? Like on any given day uh, on LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter, there's somebody pitching you. Um, so filtering through that is hard. It's difficult. And, you know, what I chose to do was just put up a simple form on my blog. Anybody who comes to me, I just say, look, I'm not a full-time investor. This is something that I do, you know, on the side. Uh, you know, if it starts taking up 60% of my week, there's something wrong because um, I need to figure out way to scale that. So I just direct people to a form and say, just fill out this form. And within a couple of minutes, I can look at the form and say, all right, this is worth having a phone call over or it's not. Um, And it also filters things out because 60% of the folks who are pinging me on the, on these different channels may not be that serious, or they just may not feel like divulging all that information. Okay, great. They don't fill out the form. Immediately, my work becomes a lot more uh, sustainable. I can go through the pitches that are actually coming in uh, and do that. Um, So I think volume in the U.S. is far higher. Um, And I won't say quality is better, but I think part, part of it is because of my overall um, experience in India, I tend to see deals coming to me from India, either through friends uh, or I get to see uh, people who are targeting me specifically. Uh, So, you know, there are interesting deals that come to me from that perspective. Um, Getting deals done is something that's very different between both locations. Um, you know, it still takes time to put a round together in the U.S., but generally everyone uses a safe at the early stage. Um, anything pre-Series A is usually a safe or a convertible note. Um, and, you know, that just speeds up the process, right? There isn't a whole lot of negotiating. There isn't a whole lot of, you know, I got to time this, I got to do that, you know, legal work going back and forth between lots of people. So it's generally a lot quicker and easier to close 
those rounds. In India, you know, even at the you know early stage with only angels investing, you still typically have price rounds. You still have lots of legal paperwork that has to bounce around. No one has uh, put together a legal framework that is simple and open source. We tried to do that when I was at 500. We took the um, uh, KISS document that we had put together for the US. We translated that into Indian legalese and essentially it was a CCD um, uh, compulsory convertible debenture uh, that we open sourced. And we just said, hey, this is just a quicker and easier way to get deals done in India. And, you know, some people have used them, not uh, a lot. I don't know these days, but um, I think that's a real big difference. It just still takes a long time uh, to get through the operational aspects of closing around, not just rounding up the investors, but, you know, getting the legal documents and the lawyers and, you know, all, it, it, to me, it's just unnecessary time wasted and unnecessary expenses. Um, it also leads to some challenges because I've seen deals where, you know, um, there are certain things that are buried in the documents that if you had read the documents, you would pick up on and you might not want to agree to. Um, but because it's just such a pain, you either just don't read them and you just sign, or there's a VC who is leading around who has terms and agreements, uh, terms and conditions in uh, documents that might be more favorable to them. So, you know, you eliminate a lot of that stuff in the US. You don't really have to deal with that. Even, you know, most early stage uh, VCs in the US will are very comfortable doing a safe agreement, right? Uh, or convertible note. Right. There's three or four things that you typically negotiate and that's it. Um, so it's pretty quick on an operational perspective to close around. What about your experience found working with the founders themselves? How has that evolved, especially given that you start investing in India fairly early, maybe the early 2010s and 11s, and then as you go about it, even today, how has that evolution been for you? How has the founder mentality changed? And are there some things that you can highlight and insights you can provide to like founders today and uh, angels today? and give them an insight into the perspectives and what you're seeing in the industry from a founder side. So, you know, I think there's been a ton of evolution at every level uh, in India over the last decade. Um, founders are far more astute. Founders are far more aware. Um, there's more competition for deals than there was uh, 10 years ago, even five years ago, right? You, you, the angel... Uh, investor didn't really become the individual angel investor didn't really become a thing in India till about 2014, 2015. Um, most of them were still angel groups like IAN or Mumbai angels or uh, some of the other groups that are out there. Um, so, you know, the, the evolution of some of those things has been pretty quick. Um, you see founders that, they'll go out and target particular individuals because they know those individuals are helpful or they have a great network and they're reputable. Um, there are still a lot of founders out there that have a lot to learn. Um, and I still see, and this is true, whether you're talking about India or, or the U S um, though the information is out there, I still 
see that most founders don't do enough homework. Um, whether you're pitching a VC, a partner at a VC firm, or you're pitching an angel investor, you there's so much information out there about people that as a founder, you really should spend your time doing your pre-due diligence on those individuals, right? Like, it's not that hard to tell that, um, you know, there are certain individuals that like to invest in a certain sector, right? Um, and there's no reason to go pitch uh, a B2B SaaS investor when you're building a B2C TikTok clone, right? Um, you, you should be doing your research and figuring out who are those individuals and focusing on, on those people. So I think research is a big thing uh, in both places, which is still a problem. Um, introductions is another big problem. I think it's less of a problem here in the U.S. than it is in India. Um, I think people in the U.S. have figured out a way to hustle their way into an introduction. And if they can't, more and more VCs are open to cold pitches. Um, you know, some, some might say, hey, just drop me an email and I'll look at it. Others might say, um, here's a form on our website, fill it out and we'll get back to you. In India, I think it's still different. I think in India, people still want to see introductions. Um, and if they're not getting introductions, they most of the times ignore those deals, uh, which puts a lot of founders at a significant disadvantage. A lot of founders just don't have the networks yet uh, to get those introductions. So, you know, my advice to founders in the past has been, well, don't target VCs then. If you don't have a network uh, amongst investors and VCs, don't target them. Target founders. Go talk to a founder who's raised a series A, go talk to a founder who's raised a seed round, you know, get their advice, build relationships with them and start doing it. Uh, you know, even before you think you're starting your company. Um, if you think you ever might want to start a company, start doing it then start picking their brain, start talking to them and building those relationships because those are the guys who are going to give you the introductions later on. Right. Um, so there are ways of doing these things, but I think founders need to spend a little bit more time, um, figuring out the broader strategy and then implement the tactical uh, pieces in line with that broader strategy. And, you know, I think founders tend to go more tactical without laying out that broader strategy first. Um, you know, in the US, I've seen the same thing happen on a regular basis, uh, but it's a little less so than it is in India. And I think partly it's just because of more maturity uh, of the ecosystem in the US and um, just the fact that there are so many more VCs in the US, right? Like there are probably hundreds of firms that uh, exist in just the Northeast that I've never heard of, right? Um, but they're still investing and there are still founders that are raising money from them. And um, so that that maturity allows people to to do certain things that can't be done in the ecosystem that is still evolving. Um, yeah. That's a very valid point that you make. And some of that also comes down to culture, right? 
I mean, yeah. Asian countries uh, perhaps might not be the best to talk about all of the Asian countries and normalize this as such. But in India, asking for help as such is not seen as something that is historically been or seen as something that's strong of a person that's not a strong yeah. suit and that doesn't come naturally to a lot of people so the whole aspect about hustling is something that needs to be developed over the course of time and not a lot of founders especially those who come from small towns or even those who are in cities as such find it very difficult to to go out and quote-unquote hustle or ask for help or be a little more proactive in terms of outreach which often doesn't happen and even when they try to do that, one thing that they don't really realize that is it's a numbers game. The yeah. more you reach out, the better chances that you have that somebody's going to say yes. And they get very discouraged at the early stage when, yeah. you know, they probably reach out to like 25 people and nobody gets back to them. I mean, it's a numbers game. You've got to like keep going at it. The number Absolutely. of times that I've been rejected uh, for a lot of things could be a job, could be for this podcast for that matter. I mean, it's, you've got to like, cast a wide net and eventually there would be people who will will have the time who have the network who have the resources who would really want to help you out and it really takes you time to develop that thick skin which i don't think a lot of founders have really understood as yet even though it's it's an evolving and mature market in india what it is right now than it was maybe like 10 years ago for sure and i think you bring up a great point from a culture perspective but in addition to that, I think education has a lot to do with it as well. In, in the U.S., you are, or at least you used to be, I don't know if this is still the case, uh, you know, as a six, six-year-old or seven-year-old, you're forced to get up in front of your class and um, do a book report, right? Talk about something. So public speaking is something, right? Like you're forced to be extroverted in a lot of ways. Um, the whole culture in the U S of storytelling and, um, marketing yourself is not seen as a bad thing. Whereas I think if we look at India, you know, these are things that are not taught to children at a young age. Children are taught to don't ask questions, listen to what I am telling you. And that's it. Right. And that stunts a lot of the creativity uh, of a child and eventually an adult, right? So as an adult, uh, culturally, in the U.S., you have, for the most part, you're 18 years old, you're going away to college, you're on your own. Figure it out, right? Sure, mommy and daddy can help, but you got to figure out your own life. In India, you can be 30 years old, 40 years old, and, you know, you still have to talk to mom and dad about whatever and get their okay on decisions that you have to make. So I think culturally, that has a significant impact directly on founders as well, right? Like, it may not be that founders are looking or they have to get mommy and daddy's approval for a certain thing, but they are constantly looking for the blessing of what is perceived to be somebody who is in a in a position of authority, right? Um, so whether it's your angel investor, your VC, or who, or uh, another founder who has raised the Series A or whatever, right? So I think that you you see uh, the deference uh, more frequently in India than you do here, and you see people that are uh, founders that are more. 
um, they're just, you know, they're, they're ready to hustle more here because that's what they've been forced to do uh, from a young age. You know, uh, the flip side is in India, I've met some amazing founders over the years that came from very humble backgrounds and have just hustled, hustled, hustled their entire lives. And, you know, some of them have taken a very long game approach. Um, you know, like one founder, I, uh, you know, I met him, I think three years or two years before he had a startup, before he worked at a startup, before he had anything to do with a startup. You know, he reached out, met up and, you know, spent two years getting to know me before me finally saying, okay, yeah, you know, you're doing a startup now, I'll invest, right? Um, so that, and then the cultural aspect, you know, it also applies to the education differences but that exist in, uh, in the U.S. and India as well. No, that's a wonderful point that you make. I think that culture is slowly coming about, and I think a lot of people are putting themselves out of their comfort zone. And I hope to see that culture develop in India and hopefully in the long run, we'll see a lot more founders being comfortable and maybe on par with some of their other fellow founders here in the US or other parts of the world. I have no doubt, mm -hmm. no doubt. I mean, I, I think we're already seeing founders that are uh, on par with founders here or uh, even better than founders here, for sure. Absolutely. But maybe not at scale yet, right? Um, Absolutely. That, that's the interesting thing that we want uh, we want to see and that we're betting on and that we're trying to help happen is, you know, how, how do we do that? Like that was one of the, and I'm sorry to go off on another tangent, but that was one of the things that I saw as a huge value add when I was at 500 was like, look guys, you know, you know, India, you understand India. I can take you out of India, put you in the middle of Silicon Valley and force you to completely adapt the way that you think, the way that you work, who you work with, who your network is, and all of this stuff overnight, right? And you're not going to get that staying in India. You're going to get that if I take you and send you to uh, Mountain View. Uh, and, you know, I think that, 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 that that's part of the education aspect is like, hey, you're going to go there, you're going to meet, you know, 100 other people that you've never met before, and you're going to be living with them day and night for the next four months, you better build some relationships there. Right. Um, some people do it very successfully. Other people struggle early on and then they finally find uh, uh, their rhythm. Um, but you know, those types of opportunities I think are really, really, really helpful for founders and really important. Uh, I, I know accelerators aren't looked upon very favorably in India uh, and for good reason, but I think you know these are some of the things that an accelerator program uh, overseas provides that um, would be really, really helpful for a lot of founders. Then going back to the point that you made about scale, I mean, we've got the numbers, right? I mean, you'd like to think yeah. that because of the numbers that we have, it should be easy for us to do that. But I think it's, as you mentioned, it's that cultural thing that really needs to come about and a lot more investors and um, fellow founders need to encourage people that they're seeing within the industry and more opportunities there are through events and um, it could be conferences it could be just closed meetup groups and i think we're seeing a lot of that kind of like generate and come up right now and um, there is 
there's a movement in my opinion that's kind of like coming about in in pockets of india hopefully that happens at scale across the country as well but you're seeing that come up in delhi in bombay in bangalore and some parts of even um the east where this movement is slowly starting to come about and i think it's going to take time it's going to take more people it's going to take a lot of effort and resources to really put that foundation in place to educate in all aspects the next generation of founders and entrepreneurs to really take that baton and and go run with it yeah i completely agree and i think this comes back to some of the stuff that we were talking about earlier about you know community and ecosystem right like building community and building ecosystem is it's a thankless job and you know it's it's a lot of hard work without any sort of real recognition or income or anything like that and but this is what's needed like exactly what you're talking about this is a part of that community and ecosystem building and there are people that need to just take uh uh just take that opportunity and say look i see this need i'm just going to do it and you know it might be slow going you might just like any startup you might fail and stumble uh, a couple of times but if you're doing the right thing and you're serving uh the need that people have eventually people are going to see that and they say whoa, whoa, whoa count me in also um right so i think yeah, you know it you you definitely i mean that herd mentality is useful in a way yeah as long yeah. as you know there are people who are kind of like picking up on things and you know following um or following a path that is kind of being set forward by some people who have been successful i think a lot more will fall into line and and think that it's a right path to take and we need that i mean we always talk about the herd mentality in a negative light but in some cases you know there are merits to it and yeah. hopefully this is one of those things that can that can take that route i agree i agree now coming back to the subject of angel investing how would you assess or measure an angel investor's success like how do you measure your own success when it comes to investing look i i think the simplest way of measuring success is are you seeing any sort of returns um now those could be paper returns um that could be you know companies that are raising that next round of funding and getting um a markup um it could be you know like i there's one company that i invested in um i want to say probably 7 8 years ago that has always struggled to raise money but um uh, is doing close to 78 million dollars in revenue um right so that's an interesting company because i look at it like well how am i ever going to get out of this company and you know are you going to raise any more money how much more can you grow and but you know 78 million dollars in uh revenue is nothing to sneeze at right so i look at a company like that and say it's a it, it was probably a good company to invest in but probably not the best company for me to get a return from um So I think that's it, it it's hard to assess especially in a short period of time. I think you as an angel investor you really need about 5 years before you can start assessing what your portfolio looks like and how it's doing. You know, there will be companies that um happen to be in a space that was hot, they raised uh money and then that's it. They couldn't go any further because 
it's no longer in vogue, right? Um, so I think over five years, you kind of look back and you say, okay, here are the companies that I've invested in. Here are the companies that have shut down. Here are the companies that have raised more money and are on the right path. Uh, here are the companies that have raised more money, but I don't think I'm going to get an exit out of these companies. And really look at them and say, okay, which, how many companies fall into which bucket? And is there a potential for me to actually see a return of capital back to me that is higher than the total aggregate amount of capital that I've invested. And, you know, so you almost look at it, not on a deal by deal basis, but you look at it on a portfolio basis and say, okay, am I allocating money to the right verticals? Am I allocating money to the right stages? Am I uh, picking the right founders to put money behind? Um, and you have to kind of do that continuously, but whether you are making money or not, I think is, you know, that's the five-year thing. When you look back over five years and say, am I making money? And that's, that's the really hard part about angel investing. It's easier to know when you're going to lose money. It's harder to know when you're going to make money. Um, you know, there are co some companies that I invested in, like, you know, months after investing, I realized like, that was dumb. Why did I do that? Um, <laughs> you know, uh, but there are still companies that I look back on that I invested in like, you know, three, four, five years ago and say they're doing well, but I still don't know if I'm going to make money off this. Right. Now that's on the tangible side, right? We can look at success from a tangible perspective. What about, what are some of the other instances that you have perhaps seen or you see, you, you can like experience yourself where you felt maybe money is not an answer here, but I found something else in the term. Yeah. The intangibles, I think the most important one is, relationships um you know it's not it could lead to something tangible but one of the things that i like to think about when i'm investing whether it's uh, as an angel or as a vc is the founders sitting across the table from me do i think these are people that i would invite to my home for a casual dinner on a Saturday night, right? And spend time with my family. Um, if the answer is no, I still might invest, uh, depending on why the answer is no. Uh, but if the answer is yes, um, you know, I think that really helps me kind of say, okay, these are potential long-term relationships uh, that are more than just transactional business relationships, potentially, right? Um, so I think that's something I like to think about. And sometimes that turns out to be the case. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, but I think, you know, really that's probably the, uh, the most important intangible way that I would measure success is like, what kind of relationship have we built? And is this relationship non-transactional, right? So it's not about, um, investing in a company it's more about hey what's up what's going on how is your life you know what is going on with your family and etc right like I, I think those things are important and i think those um those things are very hard to quantify uh, but when you're able to qualify them i think it 
makes it easier to say, yeah, I want to continue being an angel investor because I get to meet some really great people and I've built great relationships and who knows where they will go or what will become of them, but it's great to surround yourself with great people, right? Absolutely. I completely agree with that. I think relationships go a long way. It's just not, they don't just help you in, in time right now, but there's something that is very intangible in the long run as well. Now, yeah. I'm really curious to understand why would someone like you, who has vast experience and startup experience, who chooses to run a syndicate and angel invest rather than going out there and starting a VC fund of their own. I mean, <laughs> you know, this, this is an obvious question, right? A lot of very successful angels continue to go on the path of angel investing or running syndicates than going out and raising, raising institutional venture capital uh, funds. Yeah. Why is that the case? And why haven't you, maybe it's in the works, I'm not sure. But uh, is that something that you consciously thought about or think about from time to time? And is that a path that you probably will take some, somewhere down in the future? Yeah. So look, I, I think I, I don't necessarily see uh, angel investing or a syndicate as a path to raising a fund. Um, it is for a lot of people. Uh, I never thought of it as one for myself. Uh, for various reasons. Um, you know, I, I, I've chosen, I've consciously chosen not to raise a fund because I was a single founder and I don't want to be a single founder again. Um, I think it's really important to have a partner that complements me uh, and I think it also makes more sense if you're going to raise a fund to have a partner um, just from an LP perspective. I think LPs want to see uh, more than one GP. Um, and, you know, the, the, the fact is that over the last 13 years, a lot of my professional life, most of my professional life has been in India but I no longer live in India. I'm back in New York, right? And um, sure, I'm involved in the tech and venture communities here, but to a far lesser degree than I have been or even still am in India. Um, and most of the professional relationships I have in the US are not from the tech and venture industry, not the, um, deeper relationships, right? Those relationships really go back to the hedge fund world um, and finance. Um, whereas I've had time to build relationships in India that are 10, 12 years old now. Um, I don't have the deep venture relationships in the US where I could say, we should start a fund together. Um, and that's, you know, that, that, that's the honest truth is <clears throat> I, um, I lived in India for a long time and, you know, I got into the startup and venture world in India and I've built, uh, relationships and a reputation in India. Um, and I didn't do that here. And so if I'm going to look for somebody who 
I would do a fund with, I naturally gravitate towards somebody who uh, is in India because they're in the venture world or the startup world and they're friends that I have gotten to know over a long period of time. Um, so that's primarily why I haven't really uh, thought about raising a fund seriously because um, raising a fund to invest in India while not living in India is probably not <laughs> going to go very far. That's true. Uh, and so, you know, the, the other thing is, you know, while raising money at 500, uh, you know, it was an interesting experience. There was a lot to learn from it. Um, yeah, I just don't relish the idea of going out and trying to raise money on my own uh, for, as a sole GP for a fund. Um, just, you know, just doesn't appeal to me. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And that kind of also puts into perspective where a lot of successful angels really don't go down that path as well. It's because the same, of some of the things that you mentioned, being a single GP or just going about the whole compliance aspect of things and, and maintaining that sort of um, cadence as well with, yeah, with investors. I, mean, I think with me, I, the, the way I look at it is um, if I were to start a fund, and I'm not saying that I never will, I'm just saying if I were to, my primary goal would be to find and work with somebody that I know well, that I potentially have worked with in the past, uh, and we complement each other and, um, you know, raise a fund with somebody like that. What we're investing in, all that stuff comes second to having the right person to do this with. And I see that much the same way uh, I would look at starting a company, right? It, it, it's not about, um, it eventually becomes about what you're doing, but it starts with who you're doing it with. Uh, so that's kind of how I look at it. You know, uh, would I be open to um, working with a fund that is perhaps uh, looking to invest in India? Sure. If uh, there were Indian funds that were looking to do more in the US, you know, that that's interesting also. But you know, those are, those are different. Those are, those are jobs, right? That's very different from what your question was about uh, raising a fund and, you know, yeah, maybe one day. Now it's a wonderful point. Brings me to the last segment of the podcast, which is a rapid fire. I'm going to like quickly run through some questions and shoot them across at you. And I'd love to understand a little more about your investor persona as such. So if you're ready, I'm going to start on my end. Yeah. Super. What should angels know before they start investing? First time angels. First time angels, you're probably not going to see the best deals. So, you know, maybe look at a hundred deals before you do one to start with, right? That's, if not a hundred, at least 50. That's great advice. Now, if you had one key insight or takeaway from your time investing in India, what would that be? It's really, really hard. And it's really about building relationships and if you can do that if you can be if you can do it with integrity and honesty you, you will see great deals and great founders come to you awesome what's one thing that you'd like to change about angel investing in general oh okay um i wish it was easier to get founders the money that they need 
Mm. It's very interesting. I think you touched upon this slightly earlier in the podcast as well. Now, yeah, like, you know, I, I see mm-hmm. a lot of startups that are doing really great things. They are just not great at raising money. So if it was easy to say, hey, look, this company is fantastic. These founders are fantastic. Let's just give them the money that they want. Like that, that's getting access to the capital. I think that's the, the, the challenge that I would like to solve. Fair point. Now, you've been investing for a while, uh, both as an angel and through different funds. Is there an anti-portfolio that you can share with us? Is there something oh, that you saw and you missed out and you can like look back on it and be like, oh, damn, man, I wish I'd invested in that. Do you have another hour? <laughs> <laughs> so many? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Clevertap uh, is, is one. Oyo is another. Um, who else? Um, geez, there's, I mean, there, there's quite a few of them. Um, uh, Mad Street Den. Um, geez. I mean, there, I should keep a list uh, just to kind of remind myself, but you know, the ones that immediately come to my, uh, come to mind are Oyo. Um, I passed on that multiple times mm-hmm. and, um, Anand is, you know, fantastic. I think he's built a great company um, and I should have uh, put money into that. They were a little bit earlier than a competitor uh, at that time. So I chose to put money into the competitor because they were further along with the product and traction uh, where as Anand and their team was a little bit earlier. Um, so that was uh, a big miss. Um, you know, I, there, there's a couple of companies where, you know, there could have been an opportunity to invest. So I, I, I won't say it's necessarily an anti-portfolio, but, you know, uh, before Zomato raised their Series A um, from Sequoia, I've met with Depender and that was, you know, something that I, I probably should have tried to get into. Um, but, you know, we never really talked about raising money. We just kind of met to to meet um so i kind of regret not uh going back to them and say hey can i please put some money into the company uh so that was another one you know this is a this is probably a separate podcast altogether (laughs) and i'll have to sit down and really think about (laughs) we'll do that we'll definitely do that we'll set aside some time for that as well yeah but these are some good names to begin with now how have you seen yourself change in all these years of investing Oh, geez. Um, you know, I think I'm, I think the Zomato example is a good example. You know, when I first started um, investing as a VC, I, I didn't really know or think that you can just find a founder and say, hey, I want to put money in. Uh, I thought it was more like, hey, the founder is raising money. Now you can say you want to put money in, but it wasn't like, the founder's not even raising money. You just go and say, hey, guys, I love what you're doing. I want to put money in. Um, I didn't really know that when I first started doing this. And, you know, partly because nobody told me that you can do that. And uh, I accidentally became a VC, right? So I think it was more of like, uh, I would I would change uh, my perspective on 
going out and getting into the deals that I want to be in rather than waiting for those deals to publicly say that they're raising money and then me saying, hey, I'd like to participate. That's great. Now, what advice would you give to startups who are fundraising at this point? Oh, geez, there's so much advice. And a lot of it is on my YouTube channel. Um, you know, I think the most important... Maybe, of- maybe maybe we'll promote your YouTube channel on the podcast as well. Let people know where they can find it. And what is the name of the, the podcast? Uh, and how can they... Uh, what are the platforms that they can find it on outside of YouTube? Okay, thank you. Um, it's called InvestStream. Uh, there's a website, investstream.co. Uh, or if you go to youtube.com slash invest stream, uh, videos are up there. So it's a combination of um, advice to startups, uh, angel investors, as well as uh, live stream with VCs, angels, and uh, founders, both in India and in the US. Um, I think the most important piece of advice that I would give to founders uh, that are looking to raise money at some point, maybe not today, but some point in the future is really, you know, focus on building relationships and really take the time to do your research um, on people. Like, you know, there are investors out there that are perceived to have uh, great reputations and, you know, they're famous, they're celebrities, but that doesn't mean they're actually great people to work with. Um, And you're not going to find that by reading a blog. You're not going to find that information uh, from, you know, watching them on TV. You're going to find that information by talking to 20 founders, ideally at least 10 of them that have failed um, or struggled uh, significantly. Uh, Because if you bring the wrong investors on early on, uh, it could really, really make your life a living hell in the future. And I've seen founders go through this firsthand uh, in India specifically. Um, So do your due diligence on investors as they're going to do it on you. Do your research beforehand, you know, and talk to other founders, build relationships with other founders. So you know what's going on behind the scenes. And if you have a good relationship, founders have a way of being more open with other founders. Right. And, you know, meeting up over a coffee or nowadays over a Zoom or, you know, uh, whatever, uh, they'll share things with each other that they wouldn't share with anybody else or they wouldn't share publicly for sure. So I think that's a really important thing is do your homework before you need to do it, right? Like prepare in advance. That's wonderful advice. And lastly, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Probably the best way to get in touch with me is on Twitter, P-J-A-I-N on Twitter. Um, I'm on Twitter unless, unless I get locked out again. Um, uh, that's probably the best way. Otherwise, you know, uh, on the YouTube channel or, you know, plenty of places you can reach me. Email just doesn't work here. Uh, just too many email boxes and they're always over full. Perfect. I think that's a wonderful note to end the podcast on. You've been nothing but generous with your time and insights, Pankaj. This will be a crash course in angel investing for all of our listeners when it's out. So I'd like to thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. And it's, it's been a wonderful conversation. And I had a ball learning so much from you in the process as well. No, Akash, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. It's good to reconnect. Um, and thank you so much for the time. I mean, <laughs> 
I rambled a lot. So your editing job is going to be a little difficult. I'm going to keep most of it because the quality of the content was so high. I think a lot of listeners will really enjoy learning a lot about from your experiences. And I think that's kind of like the goal of the podcast at the end of the day. It's not, it's not the masses, even if it has an impact on one person, I think I'm very successful in with the agenda of this podcast. And that's kind of where I started this from. And I think a lot of your experiences and insights will be useful for many people. It could be founders, could be angels, could be someone like me. I mean, I'm very selfishly saying this was one of my favorite episodes and I learned a whole lot from this if, as a listener myself, uh, not putting my host hat on. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I appreciate the kind words. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I, I really enjoyed the discussion and the questions and uh, it was good. It was fun. Well, that brings us to an end of another fabulous episode. It was filled with information and wisdom. Thanks again, Pankaj, for sharing your experiences and knowledge with us. Always a pleasure reconnecting with old friends. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. I know I did. If you're still here, and I really hope you are, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please go ahead and do so. You obviously don't want to miss out such episodes again. While you're at it, do also leave me a review and rating so that others may discover it as well. Well, before we go, I want to remind you to check out two very exciting startups I mentioned earlier in the episode. The first one is AutoPocket. AutoPocket is a platform allowing you to invest in precious metals and use them as real money to beat inflation. It's 100% asset-backed banking on blockchain. The app is available on Google Play Store and the Apple App Store. Learn more about AutoPocket on autopocket.com. That's O-R-O-P-O-C-K-E-T.com. AutoPocket is your gateway to financial freedom. The second company is Basis. Basis is a content and community-driven mobile platform that powers financial independence for Indian women. With Basis, you get access to a rich library of tailor-made content, resources that basically help you set and plan for financial goals, and most importantly, a strong community you can count on. The app is also available on the Google Play Store and Apple App Store. Learn more about Basis on getbasis.co. That's G-E-T-B-A-S-I-S dot C-O. I'm super excited to bring you another great guest next week. But until then, everyone, please stay safe and continue to keep hustling.